0: Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you?
1: Hello everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely, this is the podcast, and we actually have something from a friend today. I'm very excited. I uh, I sent some questions to my friend Aaron J. Shea, and he recorded himself answering them, so there will be a little bit from a friend later in the podcast. I'm, I'm really excited about that, because I'm always worried about this just being me. Uh, I've also got a brand new song that I'm working on that you'll get to hear, like, sort of the first draft of, which I think is fun, um... for those of you who seem to like the stuff I do. And, uh... Yeah, let's get to it. I, oh, I guess I should comment on something, uh, current events-y. Uh, yeah. Okay, here's, some, here's a current event. I ordered a cupcake tin from Amazon, because there wasn't one in this cabin I'm staying in, and I wanted to bake cupcakes, because I have, like, eight boxes of cake mix here with me. Long story. And, uh, so I ordered what I thought was a mini cupcake tin from Amazon that makes 24 cupcakes at once. No. It is a, <laughs> it is a, uh, normal cupcake tin. Like, full size. Full cupcake tin uh (laughs) so the photo for this week's episode is a picture of the tin with a normal size deck of cards for scale uh it's just nice to have one of those internet misorder mishaps be a thing that is fun and sweet and not like oh no now my toe is falling off you know anybody else have a toe fall off anyway there i've commented on something in the current cultural zeitgeist Now let us speak of it no more Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? Reply All, episode number 158, The Case of the Missing Hit. I hate NPR podcasts. What's an NPR podcast? It's a slickly produced piece of terrestrial radio that is pushed out into the internet pretending to be something small and scrappy. Often it begs you to invest massive amounts of time into narratives without conclusions, let alone satisfying endings. Bonus points if at some point in a given episode the 30-something host expresses shock at a mundane behavior of an ordinary person. He eats only oatmeal for breakfast? Every day? Thankfully, this little gem is the complete antidote to that nonsense. The listener contacts Reply All for help finding a radio hit he remembers from the 90s that seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. The ensuing heroic lengths of their search would not seem out of place in a Somnala Ibrahim novel. To say anything more would spoil the delightful, uplifting, wholesome, and satisfying ending of this piece of cyber-sleuthing. Now, when attempting to expound upon the pointless nonsense of self-important pablum like Serial and S-Town, I will point to this. We don't have a chat with a, uh, like a live in-person chat with a guest this week, but I just sent some kind of questions off to Aaron J. Shea and he sent me this lovely little like audio postcard. So I'm gonna share it with all of you here. Uh, This is from my friend,
2: Aaron J. Shea. How do you do, comrades? This is Aaron J. Shea. I'm recording this on Friday, April 10th, in my small but charming Seattle apartment. Within six feet of me are two tiny dogs who are either napping, eating, or listening intently so that they can scream at anyone who makes noises outside. Yesterday, I released a new EP called Time Ghost. It's a collection of three original songs that I recorded earlier this year at the DigiPen Institute. I'm donating 60% of the proceeds to a local COVID-19 relief fund, one that focuses specifically on the situation of undocumented people in my area. These are tax paying members of my community who do the hard work that we are now calling essential, but are denied many of the benefits and privileges that I enjoy as a citizen. A few weeks ago, I did a similar fundraiser with a single off of the EP, and I raised over $300. I'm hoping to raise at least that much with Time Ghost. If you want to know more, you can go to aaronjshay.bandcamp.com. As for me, I'm doing okay, financially and mentally. I've been trying to use my modest resources to help others in my community by donating to a bunch of mutual aid funds and offering emotional support to those who need it. I've been texting friends to check in on them more often than previously, and I plan to keep doing it after the pandemic has been contained. My Patreon has kind of exploded in the last few weeks, and the number of backers has nearly doubled. I'm very grateful that people want to support me in this way. To give myself a small treat, I went online and bought some new sound equipment, which I haven't done in over seven years, so I feel like I kind of earned it. This will give me better sound when I record at home and when I live stream, and I suspect I'm going to do more of both in the coming weeks and months. Like many of you, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. If you'd like some recommendation, uh, these are two that immediately come to mind. For some slapstick Dungeons & Dragons storytelling, I highly recommend Rude Tales of Magic. Fair warning, the comedy is very crude, but it is hilarious, and they know, they just know how to pluck at your heartstrings in the most unexpected ways. I also really love the musical score, which is something I don't often say about podcasts. If you're looking for some fascinating political journalism, check out The Women's War. It's written by Robert Evans, whose work I absolutely love. He's like a modern-day Hunter S. Thompson. This particular story follows his trip to the Kurdish city of Rojava, and the unexpectedly inspiring story of liberation and revolution that he finds there. There are just two episodes out, and it's already some of his best work to date. A few days ago, my family celebrated Passover on Google Hangouts, which was a bit surreal, I guess. Anyway, it's one of my favorite holidays because it's about feasting and friends and family. But it's not the same when it's online. Uh, Normally, there's a plate which features different foods as symbols for the holiday's themes. None of which I could actually get from my local grocery store during a crisis like this. Instead of matzah, I had stale tortilla chips. Instead of a bitter herb symbolizing the bitterness of slavery, I had habanero sauce. Instead of fresh parsley to symbolize the renewal of life in spring, I had a packet of dried seaweed. Instead of a lamb shank bone to symbolize the Passover sacrifice that saved the Hebrews from the angel of death while they were slaves in the land of Egypt, I had a couple stocks of celery. Still, it was good to see my family and share this annual celebration with them. It was also very remarkable to note some of the symbolic parallels between the story of Passover and our current struggles. Much like the Hebrews of Exodus, we are sheltering in our homes, waiting for the plague to pass over, and all the while, hoping for a better world on the other side.
1: Aaron J. Shea is such a delight. I went through a very wide gamut of emotions listening to that piece that he sent me. I mean... It's, it's funny, and also his description of Passover Seder was just absolutely beautiful. And yeah, that's the kind of thing I love to spotlight on this show surprising things from surprising places. Go check out Aaron on all his social media. You can find out all about him at Aaron, aaronjshea.net. Here's a thought Citation needed! I read two books back-to-back recently and found a startling contrast between them. The first was Peter Lamont's excellent Magio history, The Rise of the Indian Rope Trick. The second was Cy Rice's rollicking Nick the Greek. From a historian's viewpoint, the latter book leaves much to be desired. Rice's account of the life of the titular high-rolling gambler from his birth in the 1880s is fascinating enough, but it lacks any sort of authority on its subject. In contrast, Lamont provides copious footnotes. (laughs) I made a typo here when writing this where I wrote, notes as N-O-O-T-S, newts, -newts. (laughs) footnewts, copious footnotes regarding every minuscule detail of historical information. Now, tales of high roller gamblers and the exploits of magicians being comfortable bedfellows that they are, the differences were all the more apparent. Lamont is writing a book that desires to set the record straight on his chosen topic, while Rice is spinning a yarn. One could make an argument for the almost conscious mythmaking that Rice is engaged in, and yet, that does not quite work, as he ends up quoting at length from the eulogy delivered at Nick's funeral. Oh, come on, don't you spoiler alert me on this. The dude's been dead for over 60 years. What did you think? He was still alive? There goes a 140-year-old gambler, Nick the Greek. Well, now I've gone and done it. I've dated the podcast for folks who want to do maths. Sorry. Uh, Nick's funeral. So what's the point? Cy Rice does not quote from any other source for the rest of his narrative, which is ostensibly based upon his notes and recordings of interviews with Nick the Greek during the last six months of Nick's life. Nick the Greek, not Cy Rice. Oh, wait, scratch that. Cy died not long after Nick. I shouldn't look things up while writing these. It takes too much time. Sorry. So Rice writing what is supposed to be the book, invert commas on Nick the Greek, and he cannot be bothered to source anything, not even the tape numbers or dates for his supposed interviews with the titular rogue. On the other hand, though, looking things up is kind of the point. In his introduction to the rise of the Indian Rope Trick, Lamont makes the case for providing copious footnotes. I, actually, you know, I'm just gonna I'm gonna read this part to you out of. His introduction. I hope I don't get in trouble for reading so much of this. So, this is uh, me reading from the author's note to the rise of the Indian rope trick. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that historians who do not use notes, who seem to be so common in popular history and magic history, are inventing their evidence, but there are three very good reasons why this history will be providing notes. First, It is a basic part of the job, and I want to look professional. Second, previous histories of the Indian rope trick have continually failed to check the evidence properly, and that has resulted in some blatant errors which this history seeks to correct. Third, and perhaps most importantly, many of the events and characters in this book are so bizarre that you, the reader, might wonder whether they actually happened, whether they really said what I claim they said. At that point, you may wonder whether I am being truthful and accurate, whether I can be trusted. And that would hurt my feelings. So if at any point you feel this way, check the notes at the back. I am using endnotes rather than the footnotes to avoid distracting you from the main narrative, and you will find the source I have used. The more cynical among you, and you know who you are, can then check that source at a reference library or, in some cases, a private archive. I realize that few, if any of you, will bother to do this, but to paraphrase the great George Matlock, the knowledge that you could if you wanted to, and that anybody else could, should make the evidence that much more convincing. Bear in mind, however, that this will not be the case for every statement. That would be unbearable. For the most part, the notes will refer only to direct quotes, for these are the voices of the past and carry greater authority than any historian's prose. More general points about the past should not be controversial, but if you feel that strongly about it, they may be confirmed in other history books on the period in question. After all, historians do not disagree about everything. And if this has made you wonder whether any historian can be trusted, that is no bad thing. We all have our agendas, our biases, our prejudices. None of us is objective. That is, again, from The Rise of the Indian Rope Trick by Peter Lamont. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. I just finished reading it a week ago, and I've already picked it up six or seven times to reread sections of it. At some point, I'm going to do a little mini... Uh, I haven't written a lot of like nonfiction other than like opinion pieces for this podcast, but at some point, I want to write a piece about a character I encountered in that book named... Um, Masculine, but that's for another time. Lamont's humorous tone aside, the implied invitation to go and check lends authenticity to what is being said. Granted, facts and figures are open to interpretation, but I'm not talking about splitting semantic hairs or about being a lying sack of human awful... What? No, yeah, sorry, okay, sorry. No current events. Got it, got it. Just breathe. What I'm talking about is that implied invitation. I don't often need to check facts. I would venture to guess that most of you don't either. And yet, there is that added level of assurance that what we're being told is true. Faith in humanity is all well and good, but one should never presuppose that their word will be taken as gospel. Even the writers of the biblical gospels urge their readers to go out and seek eyewitnesses. A strategy somewhat short-sighted if you're building a religion that's going to rule the planet someday, but I definitely digress. The point of all of this for me is relatively simple. If I pick up a book in a shop that purports to tell me about the history of English theater or the minutiae of 15th century monastic practice along the northern coast of ancient Lake Zaysound, which, uh, by the way, is the oldest lake on earth, that's another story, And the book doesn't have footnotes, I put it down and back away slowly. The same goes for anybody presenting me with information, verbally, via text message, on a billboard, what have you. There's an imbecilic billboard along the highway south of Olympia, Washington, which I pass regularly, with a cartoonishly inept rendering of what I think is meant to be Uncle Sam, although I'm not sure. The billboard always has a vaguely anti-authoritarian statement that I would presume is conservative or libertarian in nature, but the statements are all inane crackpot insinuations of vague conspiracy theories that are always too mundane to be interesting and always seem to imply that the rights of citizens are in jeopardy. Why am I bringing this up? Because I have never been able to find or verify the causes the sign hanger is advocating for. Yes, they hate Democrats, but in such a nonspecific way as to render themselves useless. If you want to endorse something, please make sure you explain what it is. And if you want me to think you're right, please, for the love of Pete, cite your damn sources. For the most part. Folks with good intentions who are doing their best to accurately communicate about something will be overjoyed to tell you where to find the information, either with links or well-written footnotes or bibliographies. Look for these. Another red flag? Someone who gets annoyed when you say you're going to go check up on what they're telling you. Again, a person who is communicating in good faith isn't going to get defensive if you say you'd like to have a look at the study they're waving around as proof that baboons can cause cancer to be removed from the horoscope in Wi-Fi Dead Zone, Iowa. No citation, no Reedy. I need more coffee. Hokey Fright. Have you heard about... Making homemade donuts? I made donuts! More than once. Three times, in fact. And they're delicious! Wow! I freaking love donuts! And now I can produce them from a handful of common ingredients. It's magic! Nay, it's alchemy! All kidding aside, I was shocked at how easy this was. I looked up a recipe online, found I had all the needed ingredients, and just went for it. I've done it three times now, and I already feel like I'm working my way around to making the perfect donut for me. I love donuts, and I had begun to despair of ever having a fresh donut again in light of the current global situation I am living in. I mean, the sheer amount of work involved visiting the towns from here is a bit of a struggle. I I gotta put on pants. I'm getting lost in the weeds. I looked it up, and it turned out to be easy. But this isn't a recommendation that you all go and do likewise. Likewise. A couple of weeks ago, I suggested that my audience members work on perfecting something they already cook. Why not just learn to make your breakfast oatmeal just the way you like it? I've been experimenting myself with porridge, trying to see just how little honey I can get away with. So far, the answer seems to be four or five tablespoons. For you, it might be something else, and that's kind of the point. When I woke up in this cabin three weeks ago and decided to make donuts, I wasn't a first-timer. I've baked bread before. I have my pizza dough game on point. I make waffles. I understand a bit about the rudiments of kitchen chemistry. Not on the level of anyone who bakes for a living, but my father's parents were bakers. My mother bakes. I come from a line of bakers. I grew up next to a mountain bearing that appellation. I can bake. Not well, but enough to suit my needs. So when I fired up the Google machine and found a donut recipe that included directions like until the yeast foams up and until the batter forms a window... I already knew what those things meant. And I still managed to set the cooking oil on fire. So, you know, resulting in a few exciting minutes as one after another, all seven smoke alarms in this cabin announced themselves. The 40-year-old one at the bottom of the bric-a-brac drawer was my favorite. It would be absurd for me to turn around and sling the challenge of frying up donuts to an unsuspecting audience member. For the most part, I have sat out on the debates back and forth about how folks should be spending whatever free time they may or may not suddenly have. I think that what's often missing in the opinions about this is that most of the famous examples of people using sudden influxes of free time or isolation to create great works were already involved in those fields. Sure. Newton wrote Principia Mathematica during the great isolation craze of the 1600s, but that simple statement leaves out the fact that he was already a polymathic genius. Duh, he made something big in his free time. Which brings me back to my own culinary experiments with hot oil and sexy glazes. I already have some experience in this area. I already enjoy eating donuts. And I finally have a minute where I can afford to engage in the epic three-hour... No, really, waiting for the dough to rise is like watching an old LimeWire download process of proofing yeast raising dough kneading rolling cutting frying glazing and finally eating those dubious little dough monsters not only that but i have the space the stove the imbecilic constitution to eat nothing but donuts for a day point is i'm as equipped to make donuts spontaneously and happily as old willie Spearshaker was to make papa l-town hit the printed page I have always been a strong advocate of folks getting out there and doing their thing. Note the emphasis on the word they there. The operative point here is that it's got to be your thing. It's got to be something you're already interested in, already moving toward. Why on earth should I beat myself up about not being able to play bassoon as well as the ladies in the breaking winds? I've never even picked up a bassoon. Seriously, go watch their videos on YouTube or wherever you can find them. The breaking Winds. You're welcome. That example may seem to border on the absurd, but that is an actual thought with which I tormented myself for an entire week about a decade ago. I can laugh about it now, but at the time it was pretty intense. Um, Oh yes, there. I spoke to a friend recently who pointed out that people seem to spend an awful lot of time beating themselves up for not doing things that they think they should be doing. I myself have done it, and I continue to do it. I mean, one of my resolutions this year was read Moby Dick, after all, but that's kind of the point. I like books about the ocean, I love stories about murderous cetaceans, and I enjoy 19th century novels. So for me to want to read Moby Dick isn't out of the realm of possibility. For you, it might be different. You might hate the ocean, think whales are stupid, and find everything about the 19th century to be about as entertaining as I find Sarah Gruen's charmless research novels. And that's okay, friend. Go deep fry your personal donut. You can do it! I know you can! I'm not saying yours will be good, but at least now you've heard about it. Did, did that... I...
0: I I know that wasn't really a hokey fright in the traditional sense, but I mean, who cares? This the internet. There's no rules. I can do whatever I want. I seriously, like right now, I'm just walking around an empty cabin, yelling for no reason. I'm by, I'm by myself. I'm going a little nuts. You know? Uh, hello. Oh, man, it's a long time till 2 p.m. tomorrow when Mike
1: from UPS comes and gives me another summer sausage in a big
0: envelope. Yeah!
1: Song of the Week. This is a new song that I have mostly finished writing. I call it Suitcase's Float, and I hope you folks enjoy it.
0: Crashing waves. I don't know, dear friend, what else there is to say. Cause it's true, it's an epic journey from here to just okay. Well, I know that sea of trouble seems so horribly wide, there's no way to make it. So I bother even try. What's the And that's quite a heavy load. Especially since we don't even have ourselves a boat. Though it's possible, though unlikely. that I'll be back for you, your troubles get you low Just as soon as I can find a boat And then we'll sail the sea of troubles, it'll be a lovely day Even if the wind is blowing and our sail begins to fray Set course for that horizon, we'll make it soon
1: resolution update. Number one, read Moby Dick. Okay, I haven't started Moby Dick again, but I am currently about 10% of the way through Dante's Divine Comedy, which to be honest, the more I read it, the less work I feel Neil Gaiman did, but that's an essay for another day. Number two, learn to understand my carbon footprint. I haven't driven anywhere all week. But I've gone 51 miles using my feet. So that's... Look, it's hard to want to think about traveling when I'm stuck in one spot. Number three, finished lessons. So my study abroad program was canceled this summer, which means... um, I don't really know, folks. I'm just back to finish. Number four, quit streaming stuff. So... My new MacBook finally arrived, and it turns out that I get a full year of Apple TV+, Plus. something which I would never pay for otherwise, but there's that show about lady astronauts which I heard was good. I'm gonna have to think about this for a week. I will tell you what I decide on next week's episode. Number five, make at least 36 episodes of this podcast. Well, this is the first one this month. We'll see. It's it's actually, I'm kind of thinking about rearranging this resolution so that I, um, I do make 36 episodes this year. But I, like, bank up a bunch for 2021. Because whenever I can finally move around again, I will be touring like a mof. As the kids say, I'll be playing that new song of mine that totally slaps... And, uh, yeah, it'll be sick, tight, nasty. Oh, God, I'm so old. Number six, read 52 books. Well, I've read 26 books so far this year, which is halfway. Oh, man, I'm just destroying the par. Mailbag. I got a postcard in the mail from a friend of mine in Seattle, and it is delightful. Uh... I'm going to read you the quote that she wrote on it, and I hope you all enjoy this. A lifetime isn't long enough for the beauty of this world and the responsibilities of your life. Scatter your flowers over the graves and walk away. Be good natured and untidy in your exuberance in the glare of your mind. Be modest and beholden to what is tactile and thrilling. Live with the beetle and the wind. Mary Oliver. That just brightened my whole day. Most of the things I get in the mail here are uh, things I ordered for myself, and Mike lugs them up to the porch. So it was so nice. Uh, This was sent care of my neighbor Carol. If you're interested in getting her address, uh, shoot me a private message. I'm just not going to put it out on this podcast, um, just because uh, Carol likes her privacy. But I'm sure she wouldn't mind if one of you wants to send me a letter. Or, otherwise, you can always send paper mail to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you. Also, in light of current regulations in some places, I'll be relaxing my communication style for as long as this is going on to include email and Patreon messages. So, you don't have to worry about leaving the house to stay in touch. You can send emails to strangely.duesburg at gmail.com. That's S-T-R-A-N-G-E-L-Y dot D-O-E-S-B-U-R-G at gmail.com. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. It's a huge, huge thing for me that I can keep making this podcast in these uncertain times that we are in. I was... I realized that I have never, on an episode of this podcast, thanked all of my Patreon patrons. And so, what I'm going to start doing is I'll start um, thanking people in tears or something. But for this episode, because this is the first time that I'm doing this consciously, I'm going to thank all of my patrons who are currently supporting me on Patreon. Which, hopefully, is most of you listening to this. Um, It means the world to me that I have... So many people out there in the world who've got my back, who are helping me keep this thing going. This, the small income that I get from this podcast is literally the only, uh, the the only, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The only sure income, the only reliable income I get all month. So. Here are all of my wonderful patrons, all of you in alphabetical order. Aaron J. Shea, Albert Bodenhammer, Ariel Imry, Calum McLaughlin, Christopher Leg, Nee, Danielle Franco, Alyssa Gensburg, Eric Stembridge, Gary Moore, Gretchen Kissler, Ian Hubert, Kate Steensma, Kim Truett, Kristen Camps, Laney and Nathaniel Surrea, Laura Carnes, Lori Dosher, Leah Papernick, Lynn Marie Hardy, Oryx Spasa, Sarah Shea, Shawnee Kilgore, Sherry R, Tina Jones, and Unwoman. Thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart. You have no idea how much it means to have this kind of support coming in. It's incredible that... It's incredibly humbling. I'm getting a little... It's, sorry, it's just to know that there are people out there in the world who value all the nonsense that I create enough to want to just send a couple bucks my way. It means so much. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to this week's episode, and I will catch you all next time. For now, uh, you can check out Patreon.com Strangely. If you're already a patron, drop me a line through there. I'd love to hear what you're thinking about the current episodes. If there's a topic you want to hear me cover. Uh, honestly, like if you all want my thoughts on some new movie that's just hit streaming, I will do that right now. Because right now, with the way the world is, my rules go out the window if I find out I can break one of them to make somebody happy. So, friends, no matter where you are in the world, I hope you are somewhere safe and of a comfortable temperature, and that at least one good thing happened to you today. Because if at least one good thing happened to you today, then it's not all bad. And here is your random limerick from the Book of Edward Lear. There was a young person in pink who called out for something to drink. They said, Oh, my daughter, there's nothing but water, which vexed that young person in pink. (laughs) Alright, I'll read one more. There was a young lady in white who looked out at the depths of the night, but the birds of the air filled her heart with despair and oppressed that young lady in white. <laughs>